This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 321, Solar Flares. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. I um, just returned back from a week of recording uh, video down at the YouTube LA studios, and uh so we've got tons of good stuff, uh, and that'll all be appearing in the YouTube feed and on Universe Today over the next couple of months, probably. And, and you got to experience what it's like to record in some place that is not only warm, because I know we both freeze to death in our studios, but also yeah. had like all the bells and whistles, which is kind yeah, of awesome. It, it was great. It was just amazing to be able to use all of this, all this great gear, cameras, lighting equipment. Um, yeah, it was great. And I really, I really appreciated their assistance as well when we didn't know what we were doing, which was most of the time. <laughs> so, so hopefully this will allow us to provide more professional uh, recording type stuff in the future. It's a goal. Uh, it's, a, it's a goal. Um, just as a reminder to everyone that we record Astronomy Cast every Monday uh, at noon Pacific, 3 Eastern, as a live Google Plus Hangout on air. And you can find that video in a bunch of places. Over on Universe Today, we post it uh, on Google Plus, on YouTube, on CosmoQuest. So if you want to watch us live and then interact and ask us questions, uh, you can do that every week, Monday, except for next week when we'll be recording at a different time. But normally, every Monday at, uh, at noon. All right, let's get rocking with the, with the episode. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th.com. Drop them a note. Eighth light. Software is their craft. So sometimes the sun is quiet, and other times the sun gets downright unruly. During the peak of its 11-year cycle, the surface of the sun is littered with darker sunspots, and it's from these sunspots that the sun generates massive solar flares, which could spew radiation and material in our direction. What causes these flares, and how worried should we be about them in our modern age of fragile technology? So yeah, let's talk about solar flares. And and and, and you have could not have timed the, your selection of this episode any better because we are just experiencing a gigantic sunspot cluster AR eighteen ninety, and it has fu- been firing off uh, material in our direction. It is flare happy, and flare. this means if if you have any flights upcoming, make sure you figure out which side of the aircraft is going to be the north side of the aircraft if you're flying after dark, because. These aurora are absolutely amazing to watch from an aircraft, and uh, you couldn't get a better time to see them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's an absolute treat to, especially because because a lot of like if you're going to fly from say New York to Europe, you're going to go 
great circle route. You're going to go past Greenland and you're going to get a view. So absolutely, if you're, you know, if you're going that way, try and take the left side of the aircraft. Chicago back, to Beijing, right side of the aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. So figure that out. So, okay. So let's talk about solar flares then. So, so what is the underlying, I guess, you know, what is the, the series of processes that lead up to us seeing a solar flare? It, it's basically a fairly simplistic process to try and explain and extremely complicated to mathematically model. What's happening is as our sun is working on turning its magnetic fields inside out, as it's working to make its north magnetic pole, its south magnetic pole, or its south, its north, uh, however you want to look at it, it reaches this, this phase at what we call is solar maximum. And during solar maximum, a bunch of the magnetic field lines, the lines of force along which particles flow, uh, end up forming helixes that pop out through the surface of the sun. And where they pop out, we see these darker regions, these sunspots or solar complex sunspot complexes. And these field lines, uh, they contain vast amounts of energy. And sometimes these field lines realize that, hey, we'll be at a much lower energy if we break the top part of our coronal loop, this loop of uh, helixed magnetic lines that come out the surface of the sun and basically form giant arches. If we break off the top section, set it free and reconnect closer to the surface of the sun. During these magnetic field line reconnection processes, all of that energy that was trapped in that magnetic field, that tube of plasma, uh, suddenly gets released. It becomes kinetic energy. It becomes thermal energy. And all of that goes firing off. And uh, in some cases, it gets fired off straight at us. You know what's the, one of the best experiments that you can do to sort of show this process is take spaghetti and bend it and break it. And I forget the exact physics that, are, that make this happen, but you will always get a chunk of spaghetti flying off. Stress and strain. Yeah, and that you'll—it never just breaks. No. It always fires off a chunk of spaghetti out, you know, and you'll get like one or two pieces that will head off in one direction just because of the I don't know the physics involved, the forces and the stresses and stuff. So you can imagine, you know, you can fire chunks of spaghetti at your friends with, uh, and you say, oh, "I'm just making solar flares. It's just a science experiment." <laughs> Right. So you get this, you get these, these disconnections and reconnections, and then you get this, this release of, of energy. And so like what kind, like on what order, well, like how much energy are we dealing with here? This is one of those things that, that when I started looking up the energies, it, it was really kind of mind numbingly large. Uh, I'm in the process of pulling up the numbers. So if you see me looking in strange directions, it's because I want to get this right. So it's the equivalent of millions of 100 megaton hydrogen bombs exploding all at once. It's a little less than 10% of the sun's solar output per second. Uh, so when you start thinking about that, that's a pretty huge number. That That's like earth destruction number but luckily we're far away yeah yeah 10 percent of the sun's entire output for a second is released in one little spot and and when this energy is released it fires off protons electrons basically ionized particles uh things that have charge and this is where it gets interesting because a charge in motion generates its own magnetic field. And those charges in motion end up hitting our own Earth's magnetic field. 
So how long does this process take? Like, you know, say you've got these these magnetic field lines are starting to twist up and then you get that that event. How long does that whole process take and, and sort of but then to sort of get to the Earth? Well, it's it's only a few seconds for the the whole uh, arch, the the loop of uh, twisted magnetic field lines to break and reconnect. Um, but then the light travels towards us so that we can see this happening. That travels at us, well, at the speed of light. So about eight minutes later, we see what has happened. Uh, some of the satellites that are closer to the sun than us will see it first, but we still have to wait for their information to get to us at the speed of light. So we're not going to find out about this in anything less than a little over eight minutes. But then we have to wait for the particles themselves to get to us. And the particles, luckily, are not traveling at the speed of light. Uh, in some cases, they're traveling faster than others, but in general, you're looking at several hours. Now, where it gets a little bit squirrely is um, our best indication that, oh, oh dear, the Earth is about to get hit comes from a set of geostationary satellites. These are the GOES satellites, which, which highly amuse me uh, with their naming scheme. They're the geostationary operational environmental satellites. They're constantly watching both down at the Earth to measure weather. And before they get launched, they're named letters. So goes A, goes B, goes G. Uh, last year they launched goes P, which is my most favoritely named satellite. But once they're on giggle. orbit, yeah, yeah, you have to giggle at that one. Yeah. Um, but once they're on orbit, they get renamed with numbers. So we've, we've had goes one, goes two, goes three orbiting the Earth. And these satellites being up at geostationary orbit, um, they're significantly higher up than the space station, than the space shuttle, or was the space shuttle now Soyuz. And they detect the particles coming towards the Earth uh, a little bit sooner because they're further out. And they can provide the astronauts all of about 15 minutes warning that they need to seek shelter. Something really bad is coming. Now, why would the astronauts need to seek shelter? Well, these high-energy particles, uh, they can cause severe damage when they start hitting your molecules. This is a form of radiation. This is actually one of the major reasons that we're worried about keeping our astronauts safe if they go on a mission out to Mars. Here on the surface of the Earth, we're well inside the Earth's magnetic field. We have a big atmosphere above us. All of these different things work to either redirect the streaming particles or to uh, protect us from the high-energy photons that they release. Um, we're safe on the surface. The astronauts are up above a lot of the protection, and um, they can get zapped in ways that could increase the probability of cancer and otherwise harm their DNA. Now, is this an issue for the astronauts on board the International Space Station? Because it, it orbits much lower, right? And it's protected by our magnetosphere. It's protected by our magnetosphere, but it's not protected by our atmosphere. So if you have X-ray photons, those are quite happy to go through things like, oh, fiberglass. Um, so they'll get stopped by metal shielding. They'll get stopped by other things, but the highest energy photons that get released, those are going straight for the astronauts through the outer shell of the space station in some areas. There are regions that they can go into that are safer, and that's where they go when there's really bad events. But the but the real risk is for the folks who, who would leave the Earth's orbit and go to the moon or Mars or things like that, right? I mean, they're really exposed. 
Right. So so it's the the space between here and Mars that is the most dangerous. If you're on the moon, you can go under the surface. If you're on Mars, you can go under the surface. You always have some hole in the ground that you can climb into if you need it. Uh, between here and Mars, you, you want to have as lightweight a spacecraft as possible, which means uh, you're probably not going to have a big lead shield all around you. And you're probably not going to have a big water layer between you and the outside of your spacecraft. All of these extremely heavy things can help to protect you from the radiation, but they weigh too much to support taking them all the way to Mars. Yeah, and I know that the uh, the astronauts when the when the astronauts went to the moon, they actually were really fortunate that they avoided some of these major flares. They were there when it was quiet, but before and after there was some pretty bad flares. Yeah, there there was uh, at least one Apollo mission where it was just a couple weeks before and a couple weeks after there were some big X class flares that could have seriously harmed the lives of the astronauts. Um, and at that point, we didn't necessarily have uh, all of the GOES satellites giving us early warnings. Yeah, this is a really new development is that we have this monitoring system so that we can see these flares on the sun and then take action. Like, I guess you see the radiation and then take action before the particles arrive. You got this this gap, right? And and, and in all honesty, GOES wouldn't have happened, wouldn't have helped with the Apollo missions because geostationaries inside of the moon's orbit but we also have things like solar dynamic orbiter we have uh, a whole series of uh, satellites out there monitoring the sun the stereo missions uh, the numbers just go on and on yeah and the the worse the flare the less time you have right because there's more energy boosting the particles out well it, it's a combination of Yes, there, there's more energy, how it's released, but you can spread that energy over a larger area or you can concentrate it in a smaller area. Uh, so it, when you use words like big, that's not the clearest word because you can have this big giant thing, but the flux over any small area is is much less. Um, so, so when we start trying to figure out, um, is this a big flare? Is this a small flare? What we actually look at is the flux over set region as measured by the GOES satellites at the distance of, well, geostationary orbit above the Earth. Well, they have a method for classifying flares, right? They have an actual, like, was it MX? Right, right. And, yeah. and this ends up being, so they, they make estimates of how strong they think the different flares are going to be based on what they see. And then they classify the flare finally by how strong it is when the energy hits the Earth's atmosphere. Um, so this is where you start looking at uh, watts per square meter. Uh, they look at it in the 100 to 800 picometer wavelength of the light that's coming. And it, it's actually measured by satellites in geostationary orbit of the Earth. So they do make estimates based on what they see. But the final measurement comes from the flux that's hitting at geostationary orbit. And so what is the, the I guess, the measurement system? Like we have like with uh, earthquakes, right? You've got the, uh, you know, I guess before it was the Richter scale, there's a new scale. Um, but you got tornado scales, you've got hurricane scales. Right. So, uh, so, so just like with the Richter scale and just like with the magnitude system we use with our eyes, this this is a logarithmic scale. Um, a is the, the wussiest. It gives off uh, 10 to the minus 7 watts per square meter. Uh, so if you imagine a millionth, basically, of a Christmas, one watt Christmas tree light, 
or I guess a 10 millionth of, of a Christmas tree light. That's how much light you have covering a square meter. Then 10 to the minus 7 to 10 to the minus 6, uh, that's a B-class flare. And then the X-class flares are ones that are 10 to the minus 4 watts per square meter. So the amazing thing is these things aren't even giving off as much light as your faintest Christmas tree light with its energy spread out over an entire square meter. But when you start looking at the size of the Earth's atmosphere, there's a whole lot of area to be collecting all of that wattage. And it adds up. And all of these moving particles, they, they create uh, changes in our Earth's magnetic field. And uh, here's where it, it starts to sound a little bit like turtles all the way down. So you have moving particles coming from the sun. Moving particles generate magnetic fields. The magnetic fields from these particles uh, cause variations in the Earth's magnetic field. When the Earth's magnetic field varies, you end up uh, creating, well, in this case, current. And that current just happens to be in places like, oh, with the power grid on the planet Earth. Wires are very good at uh, carrying current that's generated by changing magnetic fields. So what's the most powerful flares that are sort of possible? Um, the, the most powerful one that, that's been measured so far is one that occurred. Uh, it's called the Carrington flare. And it, it occurred in the 1800s. In fact, it occurred on September 1st, 1859. And there's a well-to-do uh, scientist, uh, a gentleman scholar, you might say, uh, 33-year-old Richard Carrington. And he was at the time England's foremost solar astronomer. And he got up in the morning and he was happily making his daily measurements. And there's this amazing sunspot cluster that... Um, well, if, if you look at the images, uh, science.nasa.gov has them posted, um, and they're stored by the Royal Astronomical Society. It looks more like a sea serpent or a whole bunch of slugs come together uh, than like your classic single or double sunspot. It's, it's this amazing system. And at 11.18 in the morning... Uh, he saw where the sunspot that he was sketching was suddenly flashed out with white light. And that is significant because the majority of the energy given off in solar flares isn't in white light. It's in much higher wavelengths of light that aren't visible to the eye. Uh, he saw a white light flare in his projection of the sun. And he went to go get a friend to witness it with him so that it wasn't a lone account and just five minutes later, when he returned with someone, it was already starting to fade away. So this, this amazing flare that was visible in white light, uh, the next day created aurora borealis and aurora australis that reached all the way down to places like Jamaica and Cuba, places that normally never get to see this. So this was the biggest flare that anyone has ever seen. And what's kind of remarkable is if you take Arctic ice cores or Antarctic ice cores, uh, you start to see uh, the history of solar flares recorded in the ice. And this is a once in 500 years event. Uh, no other flare in the 160 some odd years of visual observations or in the 500 years that we can measure through the ice has compared to this. And in fact, uh, it's more than twice as powerful as the next brightest flare. 
Wow. Yeah. Well, I know the the one that was fairly recent. We had one a couple of years ago, and it was like an X twenty eight flare. Right. And that that was the one that took out the the power grid. That yeah, was a kind and I, of I've awesome heard one. that that one in the in the in the eighteen fifties was like an X forty. Right. So so the one that you're talking about is the March nineteen eighty nine geomagnetic storm. Um, so it it makes us old that that seems like just a few years ago. Yeah. Well, I, but I, I mean, yeah, I remember it happening. Right. We had a big problem in Canada. We had this. Oh, it's referred happened. to as the Quebec blackout. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this was when we learned for the first time, really. And, and we knew from the 1859 event because it actually uh, caused telegraph wires to set paper on fire and they disconnected all of the batteries from the telegraphs and they were still able to, to send messages through the wires. Um, but. This was the first modern history one where everyone was relying on electricity and this happened. So the problem was, is the power grid in Quebec was running at pretty high capacity. And you can only send so much electricity through the wires before they start to do things like melt, like change length, uh, stretch under their own. Um, so so as, as they stretch, as you heat them up, uh, they'll eventually even just break. And so in this case, they overpowered the Quebec power grid and uh, sort of took out power to a large chunk of the Northeast Corridor. And so this is, I think, the big issue. I mean, when you think about these horrible blasts of radiation coming from the sun and you wonder, like, are we going to get irradiated? The answer is no, thanks to our atmosphere. But it's this impact on our technology that's the problem. And and you have to worry about what happens if this sort of uh, sudden blackout happens and it's winter and there's people relying on electronic heat. We we learned during the more recent 2003 blackout, which was caused by tree limb on wire and a faulty alarm going off, that um, if you knock out the power for the Northeast, Canada and the United States, it can take as long as two days to get that power back on. Well, in the summer, you just sweat a lot. But in the winter, that can become deadly because not everyone has fireplaces anymore. And yeah, Quebec uh, is not a nice place in no. the wintertime without power. Right. And, and so we have to really start worrying about northern China, about northern Russia, about Scandinavia, Iceland, and all through Canada, Alaska, and the northern United States. And it's in these northern extremes where the winter is so much worse that um, our power grid is the most fragile. But I mean, it's more than that. I mean, we've got these communi- telecommunication systems. We've got communication satellites. Right. We've all got these computers that sit in our pockets now. And, and mean, these X-class flares can take out a satellite now and then if they're particularly strong. All of that X-ray energy, um, yeah, that that can knock out sensors. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the that's the big risk. Now our sun is a what is it a, a you know a minor dwarf star? Is it a G dwarf star? It's, it's, a, it's a G star. Yeah. yeah main sequence, everyday main, star. But but the solar flares change with the different kinds of stars. And we've talked about like red red dwarf stars. They have right. totally different kinds of flares, right? Right. And and in, fla- in fact, depending on what phase a star is in, um, they're all generally called uh, flare stars, uh, but they have different subclasses. And uh, one of the nastiest stars for a prolonged period is those red dwarfs when they're quite young. 
I'll go through a couple billion years of giving off massive blasts of x-rays such that any planet that was in what would otherwise be known as their habitable zone uh, would simply get irradiated into oblivion. And that's long enough that your planet is formed, mm-hmm. is sitting there, and um, any life on it gets destroyed before uh, the system really settles into existence. And then what about some of the like the bigger stars, like the big, you know, the big so Eta Carina, <laughs> things like that, right? Well, so so Eta Carina, it's it's not so much a flare star as it has it's undergone uh, various nova over well it underwent one big brightening in the 1800s. Uh, but we have other things like UV SETI stars. The, these are stars that when you watch them, um, they give off these sudden brightening moments that are quite brief. And we believe that these are flares just like our sun experiences. Uh, we're able to observe sunspots on other stars. Uh, we have no reason to believe that these parallel brightenings aren't a parallel event caused by flares. So it's neat to see that the physics that applies to our sun applies at different scales and other types of stars all across our universe. So, you know, we've done a whole show on uh, on the Aurora Borealis and Aurora Australia. So, you know, if you want to go back and get more information about how to see the northern lights and what the mechanism that's going on there. But just sort of as a, just a refresher, if people want to be able to see the northern lights thanks to these flares and especially now that we're in this right. solar maximum time so this is your chance so what should people do to sort of get up to speed on what's going on and it's great new technology now well the the best thing you can do is keep an eye out on solarweather.com or spaceweather.com rather uh, that website will always uh, keep you up to date on where the uh, best auroras are likely to happen uh, and if you find out you're in a region where there's a likelihood of seeing aurora, get out of the city lights, find some place that doesn't have that much light pollution, or make sure the light pollution is on the southern horizon. And then look north and watch for streaks, for curtains, for mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of amazing glowing uh, movement along the horizon and sometimes all the way up to the zenith. It's really beautiful to watch. Yeah, I mean, even since we've been recording this show, the the technology for tracking them and predicting them has gotten a lot better. And that information has even really gotten disseminated out through the Internet. And so there's, I don't know, there's apps you can use and maybe people can make some recommendations of, of what they've used. But there's apps you can use that will that will give you predictions, you know, when it's time to go see a some aurora so it's so it's pretty amazing now what's what's possible and if and so if you if you live anywhere north of i don't know like what chicago even more south than that yeah you, yeah i mean you stand a chance of being able to see one especially during this this solar maximum the the best shot is always in scandinavia and in alaska but but really uh anyone from about boston london northward uh you're probably good to go But this is where I'd say also go back and listen to our show on coronal mass ejections because solar flares do have a bigger, badder brother. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+. 
every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you miss the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.